This is a substantial challenge. We think it's the challenge of our times. We're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for uh, bolts of lightning coming from the sky. But we are looking for optimistic persistence and resilience at taking on this challenge of sustainable and inclusive growth. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was our senior partner, Tracy Francis, articulating the challenge and opportunity we're going to discuss today, finding a path to sustainable and inclusive growth, or SIG, an acronym you'll hear maybe a few more times during our conversation. Tracy co-authored a recent article, Our Future Lives and Livelihoods, Sustainable and Inclusive and Growing, which lays out both the scope of the challenge and ways to make progress toward meeting it. And we've included a link to the article in our show notes today. Tracy's based in our Sao Paulo office and is a member of McKinsey's global leadership team. She also leads our consumer packaged goods and retail work across Latin America. Tracy's joined by two of her co-authors, Anu Madgavkar and Sven Smith. Anu is a partner in our New Jersey office and a member of the McKinsey Global Institute, or MGI, our business and economics research arm. She leads MGI's work on labor markets and human capital, technology's economic impact, gender economics, digital and financial inclusion, and inclusive growth. Sven is a senior partner in our Amsterdam office and a member of our firm's global leadership team. He is also chairman and a director of MGI and is co-author of two books, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, as well as The Granularity of Growth. Sven, let's start with you. What was the impetus for this report? Thank you, uh, Sean. Um, We want to introduce what probably will be a 10 times challenge relative to the pandemic, which is the path to sustainable and inclusive growth. Uh, We see three dimensions that really click together that drive our future prosperity. And that will achieve growth that is both sustainable and inclusive. But we lead with growth. That sustainability and inclusion will not be possible without growth. We do that with a sense of aspiration around GDP and economic growth, not just for the money that's in there, but also the well-being and the satisfaction that's in there. An inclusion that works towards equal opportunity and broad-based progress, and also sufficiency of narrowing inequality with dignity of work and sustainability. Of course, the big one is climate, but there's many others like circularity and so on that we believe are part of this puzzle. We uh, are leading uh, in the next with um, an and, not an or, when we think about these strings. We embrace an and. We actually, while it's often framed as a trade-off between these three, see much more of an end and that we embrace in many, many ways. And if we don't have all three, i.e. growth, sustainability and inclusion, this equation might not work. We do that with optimism, not because that's where you're always right, but if you don't take this challenge optimistically, it's going to be hard to crack it. Thanks, Ben. Can you elaborate on your point about leading with growth? Why is growth so important? First of all, uh, you know, growth leads to work. Growth increases our incomes with that, our livelihoods and our standards of living. It increases wealth and prosperity. It increases security and resilience. It, uh, poverty evaluations there. Education can be paid. Actually, sustainability investments can be paid. 
and so it works towards health and productivity. So there's many, many positive associations with growth. But of course, the picture is more complex. So we already said, you know, growth promotes many forms of wealth, but it also promotes the wealth of the people at the bottom, whether that's globally or in each equal societies. We do know growth touches on inequality because skill-based biases do lead to a dispersion of equality. Uh, growth has a footprint effect on sustainability. However, at the same time, growth leads to the possibility to finance the investments that we also have launched in a net zero report just recently. And what we find is that the leverage from growth to footprint is actually smaller than the leverage to financing the reduction of the footprint. And the sum total of that is a beneficial. And so but sustainability has a positive uh, because it uh, leads to new jobs and new business models and so on. At the same time, sustainability has a negative on inclusion because it typically hits the poorest first if you do all the cost calculations of making the transition. So we believe the world is facing this challenge in the next decade and more, probably two, three, four decades, to solve the equations holistically and at the same time. So how do you define and measure growth here? Is it only GDP? And, and what are the metrics that you're using to gauge levels of inclusion and sustainability? So GDP, we do believe, is one of the metrics, is one of the well-measured metrics across the globe and standardized and at the end of the day, it's not money for money's sake. We want, you know, but it is also clear that as people progress their incomes, their possibility to be in a better health situation, a better education situation improves. So we do take a first proxy in what everybody looks at is in GDP, but we look at many of the other factors too. Uh, one on inclusion, of course, is whether people are included in the job market, whether they're included in the broad society. Then, of course, is that true for a very various amounts of various population segments and so on. And then, of course, there's the discussion on inequality. And, and as you look at sustainability, climate, of course, as first proxy has the temperature and then as a precursor to that, the carbon emissions. But there are other forms of circularity and so on that you would measure also in terms of looking at sustainability. Thanks, Sven. Uh, anu, let's turn to you. Can you talk with us about how growth trends in the past years have affected inclusion and sustainability? Uh, thank you. So we sometimes get lost in the ups and downs and blips of cycles and shocks as we are in at the moment. But if you look back, say, indexed to about 20 years ago, per capita GDP of the world is already 40% higher. And if you look ahead for another two to three decades, there is potential for this to again more than double. So we are far from reaching the limits of possible growth. There is huge headroom to go going forward and also very considerable progress made on per capita global income uh, as you look at the past few decades. Uh, and this has been uh, very powerful in terms of the benefits that this has delivered, particularly to populations living at the bottom of the pyramid. The record of growth that we've seen has been successful in terms of lifting over a billion people out of poverty. And therefore, growth has been a positive force for inclusion because primary as a factor or a measure of inclusion is the concept of economic sufficiency. And that level can differ based on the economy you're in, but growth helps raise people to that level of sufficiency. A billion people lifted out. Uh, and it's really interesting that 
Although the poverty challenge remains immense even today, the number of people that need to be lifted out of extreme poverty today uh, are fewer than the number that have been lifted out in the past couple of decades, largely as, as a result of growth. Uh, growth is also important from a sustainability perspective, as we see. Uh, to square the circle in terms of making the incremental step-up investments we need to achieve net zero uh, over the next two to three decades, uh, we estimate a $3.5 trillion incremental investment that's going to be required each year, 60% higher than uh, what's happening currently. Uh, now, that's a very, very large number. It's a number that policymakers and business leaders really struggle to even put their heads around. Uh, it, it's, it's, for example, more than 100 times or, or more than 100% of the average increase in public debt each year, 120%. It's more than the public debt raised each year. But growth can help us finance and sustain that level of higher investment. So compare the incremental investment required relative to the corporate profit pool available. Today, the investment is about 50% of corporate profits. But if you factor in a high growth scenario with healthy growth in corporate profits as well, the investment then drops to about 20% of the global corporate profit pool. Uh, so the stronger the growth in that pool, the more feasible it is to make these step-up investments, which underscores the importance of growth. Having said that, growth is not automatic. And if we look at different periods of shock and recession in the past, what we find is that... Uh, not all periods have, have, have enabled the world to come out or have enabled the economy to really come out with a, a strong and sustained level of growth. On the other hand, there have been periods, the post-World War II boom is one, where this has been possible. So uh, it's not something we can assume. And the reason we underscore this point is, given, given the centrality of growth to meeting inclusion and sustainability, we can't really afford to ignore what we need to do to unlock both the demand as well as the supply side innovation and business dynamism that we need. And, and we would say at this point, uh, because it's all in the context of uh, hopefully the endemic phase of the pandemic going forward, we are seeing businesses actually double, doubling down in, in, in terms of the growth agenda. So the conditions could come together to achieve the age of renewed economic progress, but this is far from automatic. Thanks, Anu. So you've taken us through how global growth affects inclusion and sustainability. But what does this look like through the lens of individual economies or countries and even individual companies? Less developed countries, for example, that want to move up the sustainability curve must have different thresholds and trade-offs around growth and sustainability than those of advanced economies, for example. Sure. Again, I think that's a very relevant question because the global picture is ultimately going to distill down to the picture for individual economies and then even within that for segments and cities and so forth. And what we do see is that this is the power of thinking about these three aspirations together and thinking about how they're connected because it's not very productive to only think about one objective and lose track of the other two. In the case uh, in point, Sean, if you think about emerging economies, developing economies where maybe 50 to 60 percent of the population still needs to, to have electrification reach their homes. And once electrification reaches their homes, we know there's going to be a surge in energy consumption, even as per capita incomes rise. 
Uh, and for, 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 for such countries, uh, it is almost impossible to trade off the, the aspiration of raising that income, even when, even while you know that the material and resource consumption is going to go up very steeply with that increase in income, just as, you know, more, more human beings come into a, a higher uh, bracket of consumption. So every country is going to have to set both its thresholds or its goals for what's acceptable, for what's sufficient for its population, and, and frankly, what's affordable in terms of making those climate transitions. And perhaps to help um, bring that to life, as we talk about um, these concepts around our firm and we gauge with our partnership, you know, what's, what's more important in which geography, we're having a conversation in India um, and to Anu's point around energy, the conversation we were having was around sustainability and coal. Now, it was an insight to some of the people in the conversation that um, people were burning lignite in their kitchens and that therefore moving to coal as a form of inclusion could actually be somewhere where uh, emphasis would be you know, beneficial as part of this overall equation, right? And so I, I give that example to say what sustainability means in Australia, in North America, in developed geographies versus developing geographies can be quite different. I'm sitting in Brazil. If you take Brazil and you think about the question of inclusion and growth, Brazil has had very high growth periods, but where inequality has increased dramatically, you know, in, in a society that was already extremely uh, unequal. We've had periods of lower growth where inequality has significantly improved. And so, as Anu said, right, that the power of the end here um, is it's not an absolute formula for each country. Each country will need to, you know, will need to make adjusts as to the weight of each of the elements. And that's equally true for companies, because depending on the footprint of the company in terms of its business model and how it touches the world around, the priorities of SING will differ uh, quite a bit. So you can imagine, uh, you know, a large retail company, the biggest priority for them, for example, might be really around the whole reskilling agenda, because if they do a good job of uh, equipping the large workforce for the challenges of the future, they're actually doing a lot on the I dimension. Uh, whereas for uh, uh, companies with large resource and material footprints, uh, perhaps they need to, to double down on the S dimension. So it would vary by company as well. Thank you both. And, and what role does increasing the productivity rate play in whether we get the growth needed to boost both inclusion and sustainability? In general, I think the biggest proxy or driver of growth has to be productivity growth. It is the only really sustainable long-term way to grow an economy, to tap into demand and to do so in a productive and competitive way. And the long-term trend on productivity growth has actually been uh, flat to declining uh, in, in, in many economies. And the reason to really focus on productivity growth as a lever of growth is because if you look ahead for the next 20 to 30 years, we already see demographics as a sort of headwind with workforce expansion not really being a big lever of economic growth and therefore the need to come back to productivity. Our MGI research in other areas also tells us that bottom-up sector by sector, there is real potential to increase productivity growth anywhere from 15 to 2% on an annual basis. So the potential exists to change this trajectory. 
but uh, it's not it's not something that we can just take for granted or assume. It is also true that one of the fundamental byproducts of productivity growth is fundamentally a shift in the kind of work that happens. Technology is a big driver of that. Productivity growth is achieved by changing the way work takes place. And those changes then imply changes in workforce demand and skills demand. So there is this nexus that we just have to understand. Uh, and I think part of the issue, frankly, is that the supply side of training and education has been extremely slow to move and has not kept pace really with the kinds of changes we are seeing on the demand side. Thanks, Anu. So given the importance that growth be inclusive, what are some of the mechanisms that support inclusivity as opposed to those driving inequality in the distribution of income and wealth? It's a fair question. And the primary effect of growth is to lift many parts of the economy, including those segments that actually can grow sustainably only through growth in jobs and growth in productivity and growth in incomes. So the primary and first effect of growth is positive for inclusion. Uh, growth has a complication in which the benefits or the fruits of this growth are not distributed equally. Uh, and this is where you come to the inequality point. We have a challenge of skill-biased inequality. The skills that are demanded are frankly not keeping pace in terms of supply. So if you look at the different strata of the workforce in terms of uh, high skill, high pay, medium pay, and then low pay, what we find is that th there is a much faster growth in demand for high skill workers. And this plays out in terms of faster wage growth in that segment. Uh, the middle skill or middle pay segment has declined in terms of uh, labor demand or employment demand, and we've seen flatlining of wages in that regard. At one level, this is a huge opportunity. If we could move workers up the skills pyramid, there are better paid jobs waiting for them. Uh, but if that supply side does not work fast enough, we will see rising inequality. And it's important to acknowledge that and take steps to address that. The other complication of growth is where uh, product markets or services, uh, you know, growth leads to rising consumption demand, but the supply side of those services and those products also needs to deliver against that demand or else you have this divergent issue that comes with falling prices in some segments, which has been actually very good for the consumer. If you look at segments like clothing or furnishing or communications that have benefited from globalization and uh, digital technologies, the prices of these services have come down. And this has been enormously good from an inclusion perspective because millions of people around the world have access to basic discretionary spending, cheaper clothing, digital uh, communication equipment, and so on. Uh, but education, housing, and healthcare, which have not actually benefited as much from technology and globalization, they're locally delivered services, they're more regulated, they're slower to innovate. Uh, and in, in across many markets, we see inflation in the basics eating away up to 70% or more of the income gains that the average household has made. So growth has been not so good for inclusion from the perspective of these services and households have actually gotten squeezed. Although fixing this problem is actually a huge opportunity for businesses. So coming back to the idea of uh, you know, disruption and innovation in the housing segment, for example, if you could address 
that challenge and come up with uh, more productive, lower cost construction techniques, uh, ways of easing supply in housing, you would actually address some of that housing inflation. And that would be huge for both business growth, but also for uh, inclusion. Hmm. And what about the impact of population growth, especially in less developed countries? As their populations grow along with their economies, the impact on the environment would presumably be on a different curve than what you'd see in a more developed country. Sure. So uh, as, um, as an economy grows in GDP per capita, its impact on the planet is going to be very, very steep. And that's partly because at a low level of per capita income, one's consumption is so low that you're literally, uh, you know, increasing on, on many fronts in terms of energy consumption, water consumption, uh, nutrition or the complexity of the nutrition basket, uh, the quality of housing. So all of these things increase exponentially at low levels of per capita income as populations uh, or economies grow. But it's also at the end of the day because large countries with growing populations uh, are also clustered in that bucket. And since populations are growing, the overall demand for resources from those economies will grow. And this is a reality. It's not something that you can deny. It has to be taken into account when you look at the planet as a whole. Uh, and therefore, while a lot of inclusion strategies may be country-specific, if we are thinking planetary on sustainability, it becomes hard to sort of ignore the need for a truly global framework or consensus in terms of how some of these needs are going to get financed. Uh, because the reality is with the rising population and the rising per capita income uh, for lower income countries, the impact on the planet is going to be quite significant. But it will have consequences for the whole planet. As lower income countries come up the curve, you're going to see a steeper increase in their uh, overall impact with sort of negative consequences for uh, sustainability from that perspective. And, and this sort of curve plateaus off a lot as you reach higher levels of uh, per capita income. And so um, you mentioned earlier that to bring the world to net zero will require trillions of dollars of new investment. And these costs aren't going to hit the world equally. Some countries and regions will be more affected than others. So if you could just share with us how these will play out across different regions and across different countries. Um, the disruptive effects of this big step up would be felt very acutely by different parts of the world, much more than you would think. Because if you look at the aggregate, maybe it's not so much. But if you look at the economic structure of oil producing countries, three fourths of what they earn from uh, fossil fuel production could actually get eroded as, as we transition out of fossil fuel. If you look at low income households, both in richer countries as well as in poorer countries, they're not going to be able to uh, or even perhaps willing to pay to compensate for the higher energy costs that could come as a consequence of moving away from fossil fuels and having to tax those at a higher level. Uh, you already have energy burdened households, uh, a large number of households, even in the richest economies like the U.S., and the ability and willingness to pay is, is, is going to be quite low. And then we talked about developing countries, big concentration of the need to make those investments, but equally quite impaired in terms of their government deficits or their ability to finance that. So the, the navigating through this in a way that's least disruptive to the growth and inclusion agenda 
is actually going to be a critical part of the puzzle. So it sounds like the aim of improving sustainability may have some significant and yet unequal impacts on advancing the goals of growth and inclusion. Is that right? Sustainability can bolster growth too. So there is a positive reinforcement that will come back if we get the financing right and navigate those challenges of how to minimize the pain or manage the pain for all those segments, we could see strong output growth as we create more green jobs and productivity rises. We could also see very significant risk mitigation, uh, the risks of um, acute climate events that actually uh, damage GDP, damage output, damage productive assets, those risks would come down. So there are positive spin-offs. But central to this is navigating how we come to solutions around who pays, who finances, and how we manage this whole tension between what's needed in the short term versus results or benefits that will play out over a much longer time frame. Thank you. And Anu, earlier you spoke about the need to upgrade the skills of people in lower paying jobs so that they can more fully participate in the knowledge economy. Are there any structural limits to how many people an economy can retrain before hitting diminishing marginal returns on productivity growth, or maybe finding that there simply aren't enough jobs at a new higher productivity level to support this larger, you know, this larger workforce with an expanded skill set. Yeah. So my answer to that is if we look back 100 or 200 years ago, we would have asked the exact same question and given the same fallacious answer that there are limits to how much we can upskill people. As we conceived of bringing people out of agriculture, we never thought that 40% of the population today in rich countries would have a college degree and be doing something very, very different. So it's very hard to visualize what these limits are. Indeed, there are not not so many limits in, in, in my view, because it's hard to predict what exactly the demand of the future and jobs of the future will look like. There will be new forms of consumption and new kinds of things that people are willing to pay for. And therefore, at the end of the day, what we really need to build is adaptability, the ability to learn new things, empathy and interpersonal relationships. It's these kinds of skill sets that will equip the world for the future because there is really no limit in terms of the kinds of new work that could be in demand uh, and uh, the, the the productivity of those kinds of workers, in, in my view at least. Would love to hear what Sven feels. So I, I just add, Anu, that I fully agree, but the one other thing is to think about bring the automation equation in here. It actually might not need that much upskilling to get to higher levels of productivity. Um, what if every stonemason has a bricklaying robot next to it and they do the difficult pieces. In total, the productivity will go up. Yes, that will need to be a different job because you have the automation on your side. But it's not clear that automated jobs enabled by automation are necessarily more difficult or not. They are different, but they don't need to be more difficult. Uh, Take the example of, you know, assisted driving with, uh, with maps uh, that are digital, uh, that is actually making the job of driving to a destination easier and could increase the productivity. So I just would bring into the mix that you don't need to only look at the skill limits. It's the mix of automation and skills that 
will bring us to the next level of productivity. So as we talk about skills, you know, there's obviously a very strong tie into education. So more broadly, do you think that education systems need to change beyond offering very specific skills training to embed this pursuit of sustainable and inclusive growth? I think we are looking at the need for a very radical rethink on on education. So it's not just about adding the layer of skills or accelerating the amount of skills training. It's about a very fundamental uh, ability to build the cognitive and interpersonal skills or orientations even that people will need as we look ahead 20, 30 years. We have to think generationally in terms of this. And it's not clear that the education system in many parts of the world is really building that adaptability and creativity, which are really at the essence of what will make a human being relevant in the workforce a generation out. Uh, So a radical rethink on that front uh, is going to be quite important. But I would also emphasize that it's not just a challenge for the educational system or for the schools. Every company in its own environment is creating the set of experiences that are helping workers learn. This is not even about explicit training. This is about the organization's methods and practices and how people unconsciously learn through that. And therefore, from a CEO's perspective, probably the biggest near-term opportunity is to really strengthen that organizational capital, the processes, the practices, because the learning that you enable in your workforce, whether they remain with the company or move on, will sustain a lot of productivity growth and income growth for them through their years. Thank you, Anu. This sounds like a really complex picture with many interconnected parts. And as noted, there are many questions around how we actually achieve what we've been discussing. Tracy, what's the perspective on where the funding will come from to finance these much needed investments? This is not a straightforward challenge that we're posing here, right? We don't pretend to have all the answers. It is what we think a worthy challenge and a necessary challenge for us as an institution and for leaders in businesses and societies to start working towards. So the first one, who pays $500 billion of financing for climate change is required in developing countries, right? I live in a developing country. There's not a lot of change hanging around after a couple of years of a pandemic and a government that isn't able to fully subsidise the population through a pandemic. So how do we think about transfers between countries um, in order to finance some of the change we're talking about? How do we think about financing across generations? You know, those in the workforce now, Um, Are they prepared to pay for what has to come down the pipe over the next 20, 30, 40 years? So that's the first one. The second one is this question of inequality. So we have shift to knowledge economy, which some of the questions we're just starting to tease out now. What happens when workers in developed economies are able to get access easily to upskilling? In other economies, they're not able to. 75% of oil-producing countries of their of their economy will go away. Well, guess what? Most of oil producing companies, or at least the Middle East, is also the center of the largest youth population in the world. What happens and how do we think about the social contract when a chunk of the economy goes away at the same time as you have a very large youth population, right? I think we can all imagine that that is a transition that has to be smoothed with help from others, or it is going to create a, a difficult situation. 
Finally, the question of growth headwinds. Anul talked very compellingly about the importance of productivity and how do we how do we jumpstart productivity in the in the context of an energy transition, and how do we navigate supply constraints? That's obviously very much top of mind right now, um, but also an upside down labour market where folks are available but are not necessarily returning to the labour force. So by calling out these challenges, we don't want to uh, place folks into despair, but we do want to say um, it's really important for us to think through each of these elements and what would need to change in order for sustainable inclusive growth to be a reality. Thanks, Tracy. In your article, you lay out the six challenges that need to be addressed. Can you take us now through a few of the potential solutions? So if we look at the first one, for example, growth supported by productivity, right? we would there, of course, look to the question of annual productivity. And we want to set up metrics that we can tangibilize and see whether whether things are moving or not, right? Reducing the transition costs of decarbonization through tech and innovation. We have published this number of 3.5 trillion. Is there a way that we could shave even 20% off that number that would already make a substantial difference to the level of financing that we would be required? We talk in the third element about financing and smoothing the cost of energy transition. You know, we have this 105 trillion uh, that needs to be funded, um, and the metric would be about looking for full funding of that quite substantial burden. Then we have reskilling and reemployment. We estimate when we look at the eight, we look at a, a basket of eight growing um, and established countries. We estimate that by 2030 we need 100 million workers reskilled. So let's start looking at that and tracking over time how many of them are being reskilled. In the US alone, it's almost 20 million of those people. We need to have basic things such as housing, healthcare, education, digital access, and energy that's affordable to all. And we need to track that as well. And then finally, we've talked about the most vulnerable populations, right? We need to be tracking that no person is denied of these most essential requirements of well-being. And so we set up these six challenges and these six metrics as a way of getting a pulse on whether we are moving forwards towards this goal of sustainable inclusive growth or not. It sounds daunting when we say all of that. We talk about optimism and how important it is to be optimistic. Sure. I think as, as Tracy was saying, right, on each of these dimensions, um, what has actually been achieved serves to really illustrate the art of the possible. Uh, and therefore, I think we as an institute do feel that optimism plays an important part in addressing what might otherwise seem as an overwhelming set of challenges and complexities to which there's no sort of clear way out. Thank you. And so now let's turn to the role that individual business leaders can play in all of this. How can CEOs translate these goals into actions that they and their organizations can take? Tracy? Um, Considerations for leaders, right? So as Anu said, we are optimistic. Um, We're also provocative, right? And what we ask as we talk to leaders is to think about these three areas. So are you in the leadership of your institution? Are you thinking about this challenge? Are your aspirations right? Are you moving fast enough against each of these elements, sustainability, inclusion, and growth? Secondly, when we talked in the beginning of our conversation about the nuances by institutions, by countries, have you worked out what the nuances are and therefore what you should prioritize versus what will require a broader consensus. 
And then third, thirdly, how can this long-term narrative, right? We're talking here about, about decades, but how can the conflict between that and short-term realities be addressed? And what will that require from you as a leader in terms of both your narrative and actions? Thanks, Tracy. And what role do governments have to play in providing an environment that encourages companies to make these goals part of their organizational priorities? Anu? Um, I would say that the channels by which these objectives of both inclusivity as well as sustainability, because we don't want exploitative companies equally, we don't want companies that um, you know deplete resources in an uh, irresponsible way. So the channels through which these things surface up in the agenda, along with the core element of productivity growth, do come back to the national economic framework, if you will, uh, and the degree to which that promotes what, what I think is a very central requirement in many emerging economies. It's the concept of contested leadership. By contested leadership, we really mean a business framework in which incumbents are not necessarily occupying large amounts of the economy and, and resources and so on in a highly protected manner, uh, but are open to forces of competition enabled by things like much more broader access to capital markets, for example, different sources of capital coming in and different segments of the economy able to raise capital. All of this promotes a sort of uh, upward mobility in, in the size and productivity of firms and a very healthy churn uh, at the top in which incumbents who are no longer productive or relevant are eased out and new, more productive and efficient and modern businesses take their place. We've looked at about 100 emerging economies and we found that the one common strand between the high growth economies that had delivered well on inclusion and sustainability was indeed a higher level of such contested leadership within the ranks of the corporate or corporations structure in those economies. And, and to get to that contested leadership, you need obviously healthy and, and, and vibrant sort of capital markets and financing, because finance in some ways is the lifeblood. It is also about justice, law, uh, respecting contracts, uh, you know, deregulating markets in a, in, in a way that's actually sensitive to the needs of the economy and the workforce going forward. Uh, it's, you, you do need a, a, a framework of that kind, in our view, as economies make this journey. Thanks, Anu. And Tracy, can you take us through what you see as potential incentives for CEOs and other corporate leaders to pursue sustainable, inclusive growth? How do we convince our business leaders that this is truly important? Yeah. So, Sean, this is a really interesting question. Um, and we actually, you know, we, we one of the things we did this year was we sent um, a, a New Year letter out to CEOs, which talked quite a lot about this concept. And I was very happy with the response in the sense that, first of all, we had a lot of response, but everyone we have spoken to says, yes, this is the challenge of our times. We talk about optimism and how important it is to be optimistic. And we are optimistic as an institution because we look at the data, we look at what has happened before when substantial challenges were, were faced by the world. We are also optimists because we think it's important to be positive, not in a crazy way. We want to be educated, 
open-eyed optimism. But we need to keep trying. This is, uh, as we I think we've laid out, this is a substantial challenge. We think it's the challenge of our times. I think Sven said we expect it to be 10 times, you know, at least um, as challenging as the couple of years that we've just passed through now. We're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for uh, bolts of lightning coming from the sky. But we are looking for optimistic persistence and resilience at taking on this challenge of sustainable and inclusive growth. Right. But this is squarely on the CEO agenda. And I think in terms of, you know, incentives, right, of course, I mean, I think lots of people talk about stakeholder capitalism and all of that, right? I don't think the incentive structure has totally caught up with that. Although Anu did talk about financing, which I think is really important. There's lots of, you know, different flavors of financing that are coming about that deal to some of these aspects. But to, you know, to be succinct, right, I think the hard incentive and metric elements are not yet fully embedded in the systems. Having said that, CEOs are acutely aware that um, if they are not meeting expectations on some of these elements, that the court of public opinion is ever stronger on these topics. Indeed, very well put. Uh, Tracy, Anu, Sven, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion today. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to read Tracy, Anu, and Sven's article, which we've linked to in our show notes for today's episode. As always, we'll also share a transcript of our discussion on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR or follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.